very good. Uh, so I am both honored and humbled to serve as your final speaker in this series. And I want to just begin by saying how inspired we at the Shalom Hartman Institute have been by your participation in this program. Both your devotion to engage in the study of the challenges of Jewish peoplehood today, but also in the way in which you have modeled Jewish peoplehood by coming together as a diverse community uh, from different backgrounds, from different perspectives, and together debating and dialoguing and studying. It's a beautiful model, and we hope that it will spread throughout the country. So really thrilled to be here. I want to begin, as your last speaker, by offering a brief summary of where we've been together over the course of the year. And just in a few brief minutes for each of the lecturers who have visited from our institute to highlight some of the main themes that you've explored before I launch into our final lecture. And maybe I can just start with a show of hands. How many here have attended all five of the previous? Wow. Okay, that's a lot. How many have attended at least four? Three. Two. And are anyone new this time? Okay, just a few. Very nice. Wow. So there's really been a strong commitment and a consistent community of learners, which is beautiful to see. And so I want to begin with just refreshing your memory. Because I know when you come once a month together, sometimes it's hard to remember all the pieces of the ideas and the, the concepts that we've explored. So your first speaker this year was Daniel Hartman, the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel. And Daniel presented two biblical models for Jewish peoplehood. He raised the question, who are we as a people? How do we understand what Jewishness means? And the two models that begin in the biblical tradition and continue to this day, one is what he called the model of ethnic consciousness. That Judaism is simply who you are. It's a modality of being. Judaism is who you are by virtue of your birth, your ancestry, your ethnicity. That's one model of Jewishness, and it's a model that inspires quite a profound sense of loyalty and solidarity, belonging to the same shared family. But there's another model which also emerges from our biblical tradition, and that's the model which he called a model of mitzvah consciousness, that Judaism isn't just a modality of being, but actually Judaism is a modality of doing. Judaism is a set of aspirations. It is a mission. It's a set of beliefs and practices, laws and rituals, a certain way of walking in the world, that there is a Torah connected to our Jewishness, and, uh, and that what it means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation is not simply a set of genetics, uh, your, your birthplace and your ancestry and your ethnicity, but it's actually a profound set of actions and behaviors and beliefs and commitments and obligations that shape and mold you as a Jewish people. And those two models, really diverse models, the ethnic consciousness model and the mitzvah consciousness model, are two models which in many ways served as a form of checks and balances, as a, as a way throughout Jewish history in which we have balance the way that we've understand our Jewishness, to maintain a strong sense of solidarity as a family, but always to have aspirations for, for doing in the world, for, 
for enacting and actualizing a set of principles and morals and ethics in the world. He also really uh, suggested that in many ways today, both in Israel and in North America, the balance between these two models are in question. And he focused a lot in his lecture on the tensions of the ethnic and the mitzvah consciousness in Israel and its compartmentalization in Israeli society, and the tensions in North American society where the models are so blended and Judaism is really a set of voluntary choices in a way that really brings into question our commitments and our distinctiveness and our particularity as a Jewish people. So that was your first lecture with Daniel. Yehuda Kurtzer, who's the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, came the next month. And he really presented another set of models. This seems to be a methodology that we enjoy at the Hartman Institute. And the models that he presented were models around the question of the Israel diaspora relationship. And the Israel diaspora relationship is particularly challenged today in many ways for positive reasons because we are finding ourselves in a dramatically unprecedented period in the history of the Jewish people in which never before have we experienced such success in the realm of sovereignty. The modern state of Israel is our greatest story, our greatest success of Jewish sovereignty. And never before have we experienced such great success as Jews in the diaspora, success in our acceptance, in our freedom, in our prosperity. And these two successes, both in Israel and in North America, in many ways have led to a challenge. How do we as these two successful, in many ways independent communities, understand our relationship to one another, when in reality we no longer need one another as we have in the past? And how are we going to form a new kind of relationship amidst these realities. So he presented five models. The first model was the model of you go your way and I'll go my way, right? Everyone can have their separate space. This was the Abraham and Lot model or the Ben-Gurion and Blaustein model. We can retain our kinship paradoxically by living apart in our separate spheres. That was his first model. Yehuda also presented in his second model the idea of having two homelands or two homes, that it is possible to maintain dual identities. This is the, the model of Philo of Alexandria or the model of Brandeis here in America, that it is possible to have multiple loyalties and that's okay. We can have a home here in America and a homeland there in Israel. The third model he presented, which also emerges from our tradition and has a biblical foundation and beyond, is the model, the hierarchical model. The model of ki mitzion tetzei Torah, that Torah comes from Zion. There is a hierarchy. Israel is the center, we are the periphery, and we can live together in relationship as long as we in the diaspora acknowledge that Israel is the center, Israel should set our policies, and we should be uh, humble and, uh, in a sense, obedient to, to that central authority in Israel. His fourth model was a model of relationship through feelings and empathy. The idea, I think it was uh, Soloveitchik in Koldo Didofek, who imagines that when boiling water is poured on the head of the Moroccan Jew, that a Jew in Paris will feel the pain 
that we are all as a Jewish people like one body and each part of our people is like a different limb in this connected body and we feel the pain of one another. That was model number four. And model number five that Yehuda presented was the model of, of tribal responsibility. And this was the model that we saw in the biblical story of Reuben and God, who actually stay on the other side of the Jordan. They don't move into the land of Israel. And yet, it's okay for them to stay on the other side of the Jordan as long as they pay their debt of loyalty and obligation to their family by crossing over and serving as shock troopers and, um, and uh, helping to conquer the land. And so to we as Jews today in the diaspora, we can remain loyal in a, in a model of tribal Jewish loyalty by remaining in the diaspora but paying our debt, our obligation to the homeland in Israel. These were five different models all emerging from the biblical tradition and throughout Jewish history, and Yehuda presented them in many ways to show that there are multiplicity of models of Jewish peoplehood, and that today part of the complexity of understanding Jewish peoplehood and grappling with both our challenges and our opportunities is recognizing that we have these multiple models, uh, we're inheritors of a complex tradition on this issue of peoplehood, and we continue to grapple and struggle with that complexity. And yet we have these different models, these philosophical models from our tradition, which can help guide us. And I remember at the end of his lecture that he asked many of you to vote which model resonates with you the most. And that too was a way of modeling the diversity in this room and your multiple experiences and perspectives on Jewish peoplehood, both from your own experiences here living in America and from your beliefs and your philosophies about Jewish life as you understand it, both here and in Israel. The third speaker was Alana Steinhain, who is our director of lay leadership education. And she raised the question about the tension between conformity and difference in a Jewish people which has so much diversity. And she offered two models, uh, again, multiple models. The first model she offered was what she called the univocal model, that if we look at the book of Deuteronomy and we look at the legal system where you had a high court that determined a certain set of laws, and there was no room for deviation. You can't deviate from the right or the left according to Deuteronomy. You must follow the ruling as handed down by the, the great high court. And there's not a lot of tolerance for deviance or for diversity. The positive or the, the value added to this model is that there's a lot of clarity. The downside is that there's not a lot of flexibility and there's not a lot of room for debate. The second model is the model of, of discourse, the rabbinic model of machloket, of debate, where we see in the Mishnah, dissenting opinions are always recorded, and where there seems to be a high tolerance for not only a diversity of opinions, but in some cases, even a diversity of practice, as long as everyone has their own space and their own institution or their own court in which that position or that perspective can be held so that we can remain a unified people as long as we have multiple avenues, multiple institutions in which we can act out those forms of Judaism. Uh, Micha Goodman, our, one of our scholars from Israel, came the following month, and 
he introduced his talk by talking about two dreams that have dominated the collective consciousness in Jewish history. The first dream was to be independent from the Gentiles, as he puts it, and the second dream was to be loved by the Gentiles. And as he explained in the 19th century, both of those dreams got names. The dream to be accepted was called emancipation, and the dream to be sovereign was called Zionism. And today in the 21st century, we find ourselves in a situation where, in a sense, all of our dreams have come true, at least here as American Jews. We are actually living out the dream of total acceptance. And in Israel, we are living out the dream of sovereignty. And so what happens when your dreams come true? So Micha focused particularly on the question of Israel and Israeliness and traced the history from the founding fathers of Zionism, the history of the Zionist project and the way in which it has shifted. That when the founding fathers of Zionism started the Zionist project, they, were, they understood their project as, in many ways, a therapeutic project to try to cure the diaspora Jew of the sickness of having been in exile. Curing the diaspora Jew of the neurosis, which comes from being under the thumb, under the control of two Gs, God and the Gentile. So that the founding fathers, who are profoundly secular, the, the founding fathers understood that in order to create a new Jew, the Zionist project had to liberate Jews from the past, had to liberate Jews from the dominion and the control of Gentile nations, but also had to liberate Jews from Judaism, had to liberate Jews from Jewish law and Jewish tradition, which formed a Jew who was submissive, who was meek, uh, who was always fearful and neurotic, and that was the kind of the vision of the early, the secular Zionist fathers like Berdachevsky and others. And what Micha explained in his talk was that in many ways that Zionist project was a complete success. That Israeli society created a new Jew who was liberated from the past, liberated from the shackles of foreign domination and even control of tradition. And that now in many ways the success has uh, created a, a secondary challenge. And that challenge is if you liberate Jews from the past, from the control of the past and the control of tradition, you're also liberating Jews from a connection to a shared memory, which is what gives us a sense of solidarity with Jews across time and space. So that in many ways, Israelis felt disconnected from diaspora Jews because they were disconnected from that shared story from that past. So what Micha explained is that what we find today in the last maybe 10 or 15 years is a real revolution in Israeli society, which is re-embracing Jewish tradition. We see it in secular Israeli music, which has become very spiritual music, uh, that the new model of Israeliness follows less the Berdachevsky's complete secular model and a little more what he called the Ahad Ha'am model, where we can embrace our past without being controlled by our past, that we can revisit the tradition of our past as Ruth Calderon did in her speech in the Knesset as she was teaching Talmud uh, and as, um, 
as we see in Israeli culture and Israeli society, and that Micha argued this was a very positive development as we think about the future of the Israeli diaspora relationship that Jews now, both in Israel and in North America, can have a shared past and a common story. And finally, Yossi Klein-Halevi was your last speaker. Yossi came and really shared what he felt was a crisis facing the Jewish people today. And it's a crisis in the way in which we can dialogue with one another when we are facing a series of unprecedented existential threats. And that the challenge is we all agree that Israel is facing existential threats, but we don't agree on which existential threats those are. So as an example, some may believe that a nuclear Iran is the main existential threat. Others may believe that the compromising of the bipartisan US relationship with Israel is the existential threat. Or in the realm of the peace process, some like Amos Oz might think that the failure of a two-state solution will spell the doom of Israel and the future of the Jewish people, where others might feel that a two-state solution will lead to Hamas in the West Bank, and that would be like a Naftali Bennett approach, that the challenge is both sides, both camps, feel that they are facing existential threats. There are two compelling yet different anxieties about the existential threats facing the Jewish people, and it has led to a profoundly disorienting moment for the Jewish people. We're living in a time of ambiguity, complicated time, a time of confusion, and Yossi urged us that what we should do in a time like this is to develop a different kind of sensibility about our dialogue as a Jewish people, that we need to develop a humility, an open-mindedness, a, a, a realization of the ambivalent state in which we find ourselves so that when we come to a dialogue with other Jews on these issues, that we come with, from a perspective of empathy and compassion, even if I vehemently disagree with you. I can have my firm commitments, and I can uh, make my case because I believe that I am defending what is an existential threat to Israel, and yet I can also acknowledge with humility and with openness that you are also coming from a place of serious concern about an existential threat to Israel. And that plea for humility and that plea for open-mindedness uh, is what Yossi argues will preserve our sanity as a Jewish people in these really complicated times. So that's a brief summary of the first five sessions that we had. And, uh, and I'm going to turn now to our last session. Everyone has your source sheets? OK, wonderful. So today we've talked, I'm going to take this out because I can't see it. too short to see above the desk and my all right, is that good? Um, so as a final lecture for this series, I want to return to the title of our series. We've called it Jewish Peoplehood, Inside, Outside, and In Between. And I want to conclude our series by exploring the question of Jewish boundaries. Because you really can't talk about Jewish peoplehood without addressing this question of boundaries. Who's inside, who's outside? All peoples end up defining themselves as a people by distinguishing who makes us us and who makes them them. What is the difference between us and them? Uh, but as we've seen, 
that sense of who's in and who's out, who is us and who is them, is a very complicated picture for the Jewish people. It's complicated by the multiple settings in which we've lived, the multiple ways in which we've envisioned and actualized what it means to be Jewish, and it's particularly complicated as modern Jews living in America where we are not forced to distinguish between us and them. There's no external boundaries which are erected by the other to keep us out, and there's no requirement or no necessity for us to erect boundaries to distinguish ourselves from them if there is such a thing as an us and them living as Jews in America. So this evening, I wanna explore with you this question of boundaries and suggest that our tradition has been concerned with two things simultaneously and paradoxically. On the one hand, as a Jewish people, we have always been concerned with preserving our boundaries and protecting our boundaries. It's understood to be a core feature of Jewish peoplehood that we protect and define what our boundaries are, and many of our Jewish laws are absorbed with this question of boundaries and distinctions, what foods we eat, what foods we don't eat, what is pure, what is impure, who is a Jew, who is not a Jew, when is it Shabbat, when is it the weekday. Our laws seem to focus a lot on distinctions and boundaries. And yet, interestingly, our lore, our narratives, are replete with stories of crossing boundaries. You could start with the first Jew, Avram. Avram who's called Ha'ivri, the Hebrew. Now that term, that biblical term for Jews, Ivrim, Hebrews, stems from the root Avar, which means to cross over. So Avram, Abraham, is the first Jew to cross over. He crosses over the river Euphrates to enter the land of Canaan. And later he will cross over into the land of Egypt in famine and then back again. Lots of crossings. Jacob, another crosser over, who crosses over the river Yabok to get his name Israel. Moses is another great example. Moses is put in the basket, crosses over the Nile, enters the palace of the Pharaoh, and is raised as an Egyptian. And then, of course, crosses the Jewish people or the Israelite nation over the Sea of Reeds to become a free people. We have later Joshua, who will cross over the Jordan to bring the people into the land of Canaan. We have lots of stories of crossing over, but what I want to focus on this evening are four stories of what we might call court Jews. Jews who find themselves in positions of great influence and power in the space of the other. And what that will tell us about this tension between our instinct to preserve our boundaries as a Jewish people, but the recognition that as a Jewish people, we always have to cross boundaries. And paradoxically, we have to cross boundaries in order to survive as a Jewish people. And how does that, uh, how does that tension work in our, in our foundational narratives? There's one other theme in addition to the court Jew, the Jew like Joseph and Esther, and as we'll see, Daniel and Judith, who find themselves in the palace of foreign uh, power and in positions of great influence and success. The other theme is the theme of women and women's bodies as symbolic 
for the body politic and the, the, the nation. And what we're going to see in the first story that I want to introduce, the book of Judith, we have both of those themes. Both of those themes that will help shed light on the way in which our Jewish tradition has dealt with this paradox of boundaries. The book of Judith, which will, as we'll see, be a story of a Jew who finds herself in the tent of the other, in a position of great influence, bringing about the salvation of her people. Uh, also, of course, is a woman. Her name is Yehudit, or Jewess. And in many ways, the book of Judith is a book which is meant to present Judith as a symbol for the Jewish people. So we're going to turn to page one, and I start with the book of Judith. Many of you may never have heard of the book of Judith, or maybe you've a little bit seen a piece of art in Europe which depicts the colorful uh, story of the book of Judith. But the reason why it may not be as familiar to you is because it's not actually canonized in the Tanakh. It was a story written in the period of the Hasmonean dynasty in the second century BCE. And it's canonized in the Catholic Bible. It's part of the Jewish Apocrypha. But possibly for reasons I'll mention in a moment, it was never canonized. It's like the Book of Maccabees. So you'll find the Book of Maccabees in the same place where you will find the Book of Judith. And in fact, they were written in the same time period. And the reason perhaps it was not canonized, one of several possible reasons, is because it is very clearly, from the outset, a historical fiction. The book opens with the first few chapters where it is quite clear by a deliberate mixing of dates and names and geographic places that we're not talking about literal history, that this story is meant to be read as a historical fiction, which is allegorical or symbolic for what is happening with the Jewish people living in the Hellenistic world. And how do we know this? Because the story opens where we have Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Assyrians. Wait a minute. I thought Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonians. Yes, but in the book of Judith, he's the king of the Assyrians, and he's waging a campaign against the whole ancient Near East to punish them for not joining his alliance and making his way through his army general, Holnefernes, to attack and punish the, uh, the kingdom of Judea, who have just returned from exile. So again, those dates uh, don't match up, but it's okay. We're in the realm of historical fiction. So we have Holnefernes, the army general, of Nebuchadnezzar approaching the kingdom of Judea in order to conquer it and to punish it. And what we see in chapter 4, I'm going to draw your attention uh, to actually the text on your page, page 1, paragraph 2, we see that the Jewish people hear that this Assyrian conquering army is coming to attack them. They get very, very anxious, very, very nervous, and the leaders of Judea send out a message. And what's in bold here, it says, the high priest Joachim, who was in Jerusalem at the time, wrote to the people of Betulia and these other places, ordering them to seize the mountain passes since by them Judea could be invaded. And it would be easy to stop anyone who tried to enter. For the approach was narrow, wide enough for only two at a time to pass. So what you have here as the setting of the book of Judith is incredibly symbolic. You have an attacking enemy army coming to conquer Judea and Jerusalem and the temple. And the leaders say, quick, protect our hill towns. Protect the town of Betulia, 
because it is a narrow passage, and if the enemies get through this narrow passage, they will get to Jerusalem and the temple. But it should be easy to protect this narrow passage because only two at a time could pass. Now, we're picturing a narrow passage, and the word of the town itself, Betulia, Betula in Hebrew means virgin. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us then that this town and this historical fiction, or really what may even be a parody story, um, is the name given to this fictional town, that the invading enemy is about to come, and we have to protect the town of virginhood from the penetration of the enemy camp, lest that inner sanctum of the temple be conquered. This is a theme, by the way, in the Hellenistic period. This is a book written in the second century in the time of the Maccabees, which comes to be associated with the story of Hanukkah. By the time of the medieval period, the, the rabbis of the commentaries credit Judith with saving the people in the Hanukkah story, and they associate this book of Judith with Hanukkah. And in many ways, we can see throughout the book of Judith this theme, which is particularly pressing for Jews that are living in the Hellenistic period, and particularly relevant to the story of Hanukkah. And that's the theme of a minority people who are very anxious about being invaded by a majority culture. And that invasion doesn't always have to be a military invasion. It can also be a cultural invasion. What would it mean if we are penetrated by the other? What would it mean if, as a minority people, we become so engrossed in the majority culture? And the Hellenistic culture was quite enticing, right? The theaters and the gymnasiums and the art and the culture and the literature. It was very easy for the Jews in the Hellenistic world to want to assimilate, and we have quite a lot of evidence that Jews were very immersed in the Hellenistic world, speaking Greek and participating in Greek culture. And so the book of Judith in many ways is a tale of caution and also a tale which, which imagines what salvation would look like in this world in which we can protect our virgin towns. And not only our virgin towns, but we can protect our women. And what we find in this story is uh, what we see really throughout the Bible, which is that women and women's bodies come to symbolize the body politic. This, the, the sociologist Mary Douglas recognizes is in all societies is a common theme that the body and the boundaries of the body, what goes in the body, what comes out of the body, those societies that are very focused on rituals of the body, as the Jewish tradition is, by the way, are the same societies that are very anxious about protecting the boundaries of their society. And that anxiety about protecting and preserving our boundaries gets mapped onto the physical body through various rituals that become a kind of symbolic way of us playing out this anxiety. And it often happens on the bodies of women. Not always, but in our literature, we see this theme quite a lot. And what we're going to see in the book of Judith and why it's such an interesting story to study when we think about boundaries is that this historical fiction conflates in many ways or um, serves as an anthology or a composite of many other biblical stories which struggle with the same question of boundaries, many times as it relates to women and women's bodies. So we have this town of Betulia, 
virgin town that's about to be invaded. And the enemy general lays siege to this town so that they can't get any water or food, and they quickly start to, to starve, and they're, they're, they're out of water, and the people of the town go to their leaders and say, we need to surrender. We, we're going to all die. We need to surrender. And then comes onto the scene uh, already in chapter 8. We have lots of lead up in this very long novella uh, in the book of Judith. Along comes this Jewess, Yehudit, the Jew, who is going to be the savior of the people. And she is this pious widow who has been in widowhood for 40 months. We already hear that she's symbolic for the Jewish people because her name is Jewess. But then she also in her life kind of enacts the history of the Jewish people, 40 years in mourning, like the 40 years of wandering. She's ex exiled herself from her home because of her widowhood to live on her roof, maybe symbolic of the Jewish people in exile. She is absolutely beautiful and absolutely brilliant, which many of the heroes, and we're about to see Joseph, Daniel, Esther, all of these court Jews are always beautiful and exceedingly wise. Uh, this is the kind of fantasy we have about the Jewish people. Beautiful, wise, pious, chaste, God-fearing. She happens to also be rich. Right? She is the full package, and she hears that the elders of the town are going to um, uh, give themselves over to the enemy. And she hurries down off of the roof and says, what are you going to do? How could you test God? The elders are going to give God five days to see if he'll bring about a miracle. And if not, they're going to surrender themselves to the enemy. And Judah says, how could you possibly doubt God? We must have faith. And I'm going to take care of this. And she says, don't ask me what I'm going to do. I am going to go out. And, uh, and God will bring about salvation through my hands. And what she does at that moment is she invokes the biblical stories, both of Dina and of Yael, if you look on the top of page two. She says here in Judith chapter nine, O Lord God of my ancestor Simeon Shimon, to whom you gave a sword to take revenge on those strangers who had torn off a virgin's clothing to defile her and exposed her thighs to put her to shame and polluted her womb to disgrace her. For you said it shall not be done, yet they did it. So you gave up their rulers to be killed, and their bed, which was ashamed of the deceit they had practiced, was stained with blood, and you struck down slaves along with princes and princes on their throne. You gave up their wives for booty and their daughters to captivity and all the booty to be divided among your beloved children who burned with zeal for you and abhorred the pollution of their blood and called out on, to call to you, O God, my God. Hear me also, a widow. Break their strength by your might and bring down their power in your anger, for they intend to defile your sanctuary, to pollute the tabernacle where your glorious name resides and to break off the horns of your altar with the sword. Look at their pride and send your wrath upon their heads. Give to me, a widow, the strong hand to do what I plan. By the deceit of my lips, strike down the slave with the prince and the prince with his servant. Crush their arrogance by the hand of a woman. It is through your might, God, she goes on to say, it's through your might that salvation will come. Now, this section brings up so many echoes and evokes so many other biblical stories. 
First, it strongly evokes and in many ways redeems the story of Dina, the daughter of Jacob, in Genesis chapter 34. And, and we know from other Maccabean literature that in the time of the Maccabees, the Jews were particularly drawn to this Dina story, that Dina and the Shechemites, the enemies, become typological symbols for the temple and the enemies who would come in and violate it. So it shouldn't surprise us that in this second century, second century BCE story, the book of Judith, the time of the Maccabees, that she would invoke Dina, Dina as the symbol for that vulnerable nation who might be penetrated. Dina is, of course, the sad tale of Jacob's daughter who decides to go out and visit the daughters of the land. She crosses over the boundary of her tent. She goes out into the world, and just what we might fear in a tribal society when a vulnerable girl goes out into the space of the other, that is exactly what happens to Dina. She is raped, and not only is she raped, violating her physical boundaries and violating the boundaries of her tribal society and the honor of her father's house, but Shem, her rapist, loves her so much he wants to marry her and wants to, to erase all boundaries between her people and the, the, their people, uh, the people of Shechem. And this is actually quite relevant for the Jews of the Maccabean period because the distinctiveness of Israel is at risk any time it comes into close contact with others. And the distinctiveness of Israel as a minority culture in the majority culture of the Hellenists in the Greek world was very much a question. And it's not just a question of we're afraid they will attack us and hurt us. Sometimes the fear is we are, all af are afraid they will penetrate us and love us so much that we'll be loved to death. There'll be no distinction anymore between us and them. So when the book of Judith evokes the Dina story, she does so in a sense to turn it on its head. In the Dina story, Dina goes out the vulnerable virgin and she's raped. Her boundaries are transgressed, and the boundaries of the, the children of Israel and the house of Jacob are transgressed. In the Judith story, we have the opposite. Judith goes out, but she goes out, and in the end, she's not the one who's penetrated. What's going to happen, we're going to see in a moment. But she goes out like Dina, and it has a very different outcome. But in addition to evoking Dina, and the way in which kind of that symbol of a vulnerable woman is really just a symbol for the vulnerable society which might be penetrated by the majority culture. The other strong association, of course, is with Yael. And uh, we're going to see in a moment how Judith, in a sense, is just like Yael in what she does once she gets to the tent of wholeness fairness, but we have to get there. So let me explain what happens next. After she prays to God and prays that God will, will wreck revenge on the enemy just as God brought about revenge for Dina's rapists and the people of Shechem, she prepares to go into the space of the other. And if you look, uh, I guess we're in the fourth paragraph of page two. Uh, she removes her sack, sackcloth and she dolls herself up and she does her hair and she does her makeup and she puts on fine clothes and fine jewelry, which now starts to evoke Esther. And not only that, 
She makes herself exceedingly beautiful, so much so that they're going to say, we've never seen a woman as beautiful as you ever in the world. But she doesn't just make herself beautiful. She does something else. She packs a bag. She gave her maid a skin of wine and a flask of oil and filled a bag with roasted grain, dried fig cakes, and cheese. And she wrapped up all her dishes and gave them to her maid to carry. What's happening here? Judith is about to go out from this narrow hilltop town to enter the enemy camp. She makes herself beautiful, but she also carries with her a doggy bag. Why is she bringing a doggy bag of wine and oil? And in some cases, it says bread, or in this translation, it says cheese. Why? Because she intends to keep kosher when she's out there. And this is fascinating. We're going to compare this later to what happens in the book of jo- uh, the story of Joseph and the book of Esther. But Jewish eating, and we've just had Parshat Shmini and Shabbat yesterday, the, the laws of kashrut, so it's fresh in our minds. But throughout history, Jewish eating has always been a negotiation, a struggle over where the boundaries of Jewish identity will be laid. How much will we eat separately? How much will we eat like them? How does our eating symbolize our difference from them? And it's, it's striking that the book of Judith imagines this heroine who's going to bring about the salvation of the Jewish people, bringing a doggy bag with her and keeping what will become the rabbinic practice that we see in the Mishnah and tractate Abu Zarah of staying away from that Mediterranean triad of wine, bread, and oil. Precisely those foods, which are the heart of Mediterranean culture, of Greco-Roman society, those are the foods that Jews are supposed to eat separately from non-Jews, not because necessarily of reasons of kashrut, but really because of reasons of social distinction and social separation. The Gemara, the Talmud says that if we eat their oil and their bread, we might come to drink wine with them. If we drink wine with them, we might come to marry their daughters. And if we marry their daughters, we might come to practice idolatry. So this fear of eating with them, which will lead to a certain amount of social integration that will erase our boundaries, the boundaries that keep us distinct. We see it really for the first time in, uh, in these stories from the second century BCE, both in the book of Judith and, as we'll see in a moment, in the book of Daniel. So she brings this doggy bag with her. She enters the enemy tent. They are so astounded by her beauty that they let her in to speak to Holofernes, the army general, and she pretends that she's there to give him the secret of how he can defeat the, the, the town of Batulia without losing any men. And he can defeat them because she knows they're about to break one of the Jewish laws and eat sacred, sanctified, consecrated food. And as a result, their God will punish them and will stop protecting them. And she'll be on the lookout and she'll let him know as soon as they do this, sin, and as soon as they'll be vulnerable to attack so that they can go in and, and defeat this town with no casualties. And she also sets up this ruse that she has to go out to pray every night. Not only does she bring her kosher food with her, but she also is going to daven mari if she's going to pray the evening service every night. So days and days go by. He keeps inviting her to eat with him, and she keeps eating from her kosher bag. Every night she goes out to pray. Actually, she does pray. She's all over the book. She's very pious and 
praise and praise and praise. And finally, she's able to enact her plan. He invites her to a banquet. Uh, lots of banquets in these stories of court Jews, as in Joseph and is in, as in Esther. Um, and what happens in the banquet, we're at the top of page three. She goes to the banquet, and according to some versions, she shares her salty cheese from her kosher donkey bag with Hall Fairness, and he gets very thirsty and drinks so much wine and is so drunk that he you know, falls asleep dead drunk on the bed. He was so excited to finally have his way with her, but he falls asleep dead drunk, and all of the attendants, Hull and Fairness's attendants, leave them alone because they're used to her by now, and they trust her, and everyone leaves, and she's in there in his tent with him dead drunk on the bed, and it says, I'm now in the third paragraph of page three, Judith chapter 13, then Judith standing beside his bed said in her heart, O Lord God of all might, look in this hour on the work of my hands for the exaltation of Jerusalem. Now indeed is the time to help your heritage and to carry out my design to destroy the enemies who have risen up against us. She went up to the bedpost near Holonapharnes's head and took down the sword that was hung there. She came close to his bed, took hold of the hair of his head and said, give me strength today, O Lord of Lord God of Israel. Then she struck his neck twice with all her might and cut off his head. You gotta love this story. It's so colorful. And it's so colorful that it's literally on, you know, canvases all over Europe because it became a story of fascination to European artists. So there's lots of artistic renderings of this Judith story with the head. You've probably seen this in your travels either sculpture, art, it's been in operas and ballets, this story. And of course, it should immediately evoke the Yael story. Yael, who, uh, this is in the period of the judges, when Deborah is the prophetess and judge, the, enema, the enemy Sisera enters Yael's tent. This story is on uh, the bottom of uh, page five. Um, the enemy Sisera enters Yael's tent, and she says, come in, and she gives him milk to drink. A little bit of an echo to Judith, who maybe gives cheese to Holnafarinus. And she lays him down, she puts a blanket over him, she's this very maternal figure, and then she picks up the tent peg, and she pierces his temple and kills him. So we have, in this earlier story of Yael, and then in the later story of Judith, which certainly evokes the same theme, we have the idea of the reversal of expectations. In a time of war, as in the tent of Yael, when an enemy enters the tent of a woman who's alone in her tent, what might we expect to happen? We expect maybe she'll be raped. And what happens? Yael does the opposite. She penetrates his head. And Judith, too, not only here, it's a real reversal because now she's the one who enters his tent and, uh, and this image of him sprawled out on the bed. He's the one sprawled out on the bed. She's the one with the sword who cuts off his head. It's a pretty dramatic image, and I think it's, it's purposely symbolic of this reversal of expectation. We think 
uh, we have all this anxiety that we as an Israelite nation, as this small minority culture amidst these enemies, that we are vulnerable, that we might be penetrated, and yet we have this image of the opposite of the salvation where we are the ones who are able to enact um, the final salvation. Um, and what happens next is particularly humorous and interesting, which is that she takes, Judith takes the head of Holna Fairness and she puts it in her kosher doggy bag. And then she goes out to pray the evening prayers and no one suspects anything because she's already set up this practice of going out every night. They're used to seeing her go out to pray. They're used to seeing her doggy bag. And so it is precisely those particularistic practices that she brought with her when she went into enemy territory. The kashrut, the prayer, that is what saves her. So she transgresses the boundaries. She leaves the walls of this town of Betulia. She goes into the space of the other. She's even able to dine there, to sleep there, and yet she preserves her chastity. She preserves her dietary laws. She preserves her prayer traditions. Um, she is able to sneak back to the town to bring the head. They put up the head on the wall, which evokes the whole story of David and Goliath, because this figure of Judith is really this symbolic composite or anthology of all of our salvation stories. And then she sings a song like Deborah does, and they're singing and dancing with the women in the street like Miriam. It's a great story, and it's a good review of all of your biblical stories if you read the book of Judith. Um, and then in the end, she remains unmarried and chaste in her widowhood the rest of her life. And as long as she's alive, no one threatens the boundaries of Israel. That's how the story ends. So both through her body, she remains symbolic in that she never weds. She preserves her physical boundaries. And the nation, the town, the people of Judea preserve their boundaries during her lifetime. And, um, and that's the end of our story. A fabulous, fabulous story. And, um, and in many ways, this story is retold in the male version with a character of Daniel. Another story that may not be quite as familiar to you, this one is actually canonized in the Tanakh, is seen by scholars as the latest book in the Tanakh, also possibly second century BCE, also the time of the Maccabees. And we're just going to go a little out of order. If you turn to the final page, page 9, we see in the book of Daniel a lot of similar motifs. Here we have a second century story told likely during the period of the persecutions of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and the story, like the story of Judith, is about a faithful Jew who remains loyal to his Jewish practices, to his religion, and triumphs with the help of God by remaining distinct. The story is told as happening in the time of the Babylonian exile, where Nebuchadnezzar brings special youth from Judea, aristocratic youth from Judea, into the court of the Babylonians to train them. So they, they pick uh, young Israelite lads of royal descent, 
bring them into the king's court, and set them up to give them food and rations and anointments. Think of the book of Esther here. Uh, lots of similar themes. And Daniel is one of these youth who goes into Babylonia um, and is in the court and is being trained. And yet, look what he does. I'm in verse 8 in the second paragraph. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank. So he sought permission of the chief officer not to defile himself. And God disposed the chief officer to be kind and compassionate toward Daniel. The chief officer said to Daniel, I fear that my lord, the king, who allotted food and drink to you, will notice that you look out of sorts, unlike the other youths of your age, and you will put my life in jeopardy with the king. But Daniel and his comrades, there's four of them, assures them, no, no, give us just legumes and water. Don't give us all this finely king's food and wine. Just give us legumes and water, and after 10 days, see how we do. And what happens in the book of Daniel? These young Jewish lads who are being raised in the Babylonian court to be versed in Babylonian philosophy and culture, uh, they remain distinctive. They keep kosher. And what happens after 10 days? Verse 15, they look even better and healthier than all the other youths who were eating the king's food. And then in the end, after this period of preparation, when they are presented to the king, of course, he found them better than all the other magicians and all the other exorcists, more wise, more understanding than any of the others. Echoes of Joseph here. What we have in the Daniel story is the story of a court Jew who, through kind of a classic Galut myth, a classic diaspora Jewish myth, goes into exile and even though remaining distinctive and observing the particular kind of Jewish practices, actually fare better than all the rest. Uh, and that's the fantasy that we can remain distinctive in a majority culture and thrive and prosper and excel. This story of Daniel is in many ways like Joseph and Esther as we're about to see, but I will put it in the camp of Judith. Because when we look at the two other examples of court Jews, when we look at Joseph and Esther, we're going to see a different model. But the book of Judith and this book of Daniel, which both come from the second temple period, so it's not surprising that we see the common motif that they are going to remain distinctive by practicing particular laws of kashrut, particular laws of prayer. In the book of Daniel, even though they're asked to bow down to idols, they don't, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And guess what? God protects them. Daniel prays to God, facing Jerusalem, the first, the first testimony we have in Jewish literature to this practice of praying three times a day and facing Jerusalem is here in the book of Daniel, in chapter 6. And he's caught breaking the law of the king, who said you can only worship the Babylonian king, and he's thrown into the lion's den. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? And guess what? God saves him. God protects him. You can be faithful to the Jewish religion. You can be faithful to your distinctive Jewish practices, even in the court, even in the king's palace, and God will save you. This is the myth or the fantasy in both the, the book of Daniel and also in the book of Judith. And it corresponds 
to a shift that has happened in Jewish identity, and this is really testified by Shia Cohen in his book, The Beginning of Judaism. When he talks about a shift that happens in the Hellenistic period, it starts to happen around this time, the second century BCE, the beginning of the Hasmonean dynasty, we begin to see a shift in the sense of Jewishness from being an ethno-geographic identity to being a religious identity. In the ethno-geographic identity, being a Judean meant you were born in the land of Judah, or at least your ancestors were born in the land of Judah. It was an ethnicity, it was an ancestry, what Daniel in the first lecture would call the ethnic consciousness. But what we begin to see emerging in the second century BCE for the first time is a notion of Jewishness that is not only attached to your place, where you are born, or your ethnicity, but it's attached to your religious practices, your culture, your observances. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that it is exactly here when we begin to see this phenomenon that in the book of Judith we see the first example of a ritual conversion to Judaism. Because if Judaism is Judeanness in the sense of an ethno-geographic identity, you can't join that. You're either born a Judean or you're not born a Judean. But if Jewishness becomes, in the Hellenistic world, an identity that is based around your practices, your religion, and your faith, that's something which others can join. And so the boundary crossing happens in both directions. Judith crosses over into the space of the other, just as Jews in the Hellenistic world became influenced by Greek culture. And yet the model of the book of Judith and the book of Daniel is to say, I can cross over into the court of the other. I can even become a powerful, influential Jew the way that Daniel does. Daniel, like Joseph, becomes the right-hand man of the king. And yet I can maintain my distinctive Jewish religious practices, and others can join me if they want. At the end of the book of Judith, Achior becomes the first convert. In Judith chapter 14, he, becomes, he sees this severed head. He falls down and, and praises Judith and becomes circumcised and accepts the God of Israel and joins the Jewish community. And it's our first attesting to this new phenomenon that Jewishness is something that you can join because Jewishness, Jewishness is not just an ethnicity, it is also a religion and a set of, of cultural practices. So that's one model, the Judith and the Daniel model. But I wouldn't be a Hartman scholar unless I presented more than one model. So we have to end with the Joseph and the Esther models. And Joseph is really the first court Jew. Um, Joseph who goes into captivity but finds himself, I'm on page seven, finds himself not only in the kind of space of the other, but in a position of the greatest status and authority and power and success, right? Joseph, like Daniel, by the way, is, uh, is an interpreter of dreams. These, those are the only two characters in the Bible, uh, Daniel and, and Joseph, who interpret the dreams of the king, and through that interpretation are able to gain their status and their, their leadership. But Joseph fully immerses in Egyptian culture. 
The story in the book of, of Genesis tells us that Joseph cuts his hair, that the Pharaoh dresses him in Egyptian clothes, that the Pharaoh even gives him an Egyptian name and an Egyptian bride. So he is intermarried, he's dressing in the garb, he's speaking the Egyptian language, he's ruling the Egyptian land, he's the, the ultimate administrator of the Egyptian kingdom. He is fully immersed. And there's lots of allusions in, um, in the Esther story back to Joseph. And if you look at verse, even here, verse 42, Pharaoh puts him in charge of the land of Egypt. He takes off his signet ring and puts it on Pharaoh just as Ahasuerus will take off his signet ring and put it on Mordechai. He dresses him and parades him around in a chariot just as Ahasuerus will dress Mordechai in a royal uh, robe and parade him around in a horse. We have this theme of the court Jew who immerses in the space of the other, attains leadership, and um, you can even see in the way that he names his child. In verse 51, here in text number 7, Joseph names his first child Menashe, which means I have, uh, I have completely forgotten my hardship in my parental home. Joseph has fully immersed in his Egyptian life, so much so that when his brothers come to meet him, they don't recognize him. And yet at the end, even from his place of complete immersion and assimilation, where he has really become like an Egyptian, it's because he's in that space, because he has crossed that boundary, paradoxically, that he's able to save the children of Israel from famine. Had he not crossed over, had he not become fully Egyptian and become this high command in this position of authority and power and success and affluence, he could not have saved the Jewish people. And yet it's unclear in some ways whether the Joseph story is a cautionary tale about what might happen to us when we go into the diaspora and the corrupting influence of power, or whether this is a hero tale and whether Joseph is a model that we are meant to emulate. In many ways, and many scholars have argued that the book of Judith and the book of Daniel are meant to come as a corrective and as a redemption for the story of Joseph and the story of Esther. Is Joseph keeping kosher? No. Is Joseph praying to God? Not one time. Yes, he credits God with discerning Pharaoh's dream, and he definitely credits God for having been sold into slavery, that this was the fate, that this was through God's hand, that the Israelites, that the children of Israel are saved. But never in the whole story does he turn and pray to God the way Daniel does or the way Judith does. He is fully immersed in, um, in Egyptian society in much the same way that Esther, in the book of Esther, is fully immersed in the palace. She goes on her beauty contest. She wins her beauty contest, just like Joseph and Daniel and Judith. She's beautiful. She wins the favor of the king. She, she doesn't bring a doggy bag with her. And she intermarries. So we have Esther who completely assimilates in a book where God is not mentioned one time. Esther doesn't pray to God. God's name is not mentioned. In many ways, Esther is our most secular book. It's through the hands of Esther and Mordechai that the salvation of the Jewish people is achieved. And Esther is so immersed in her court mentality and in the life and hiding her Jewish identity that when Mordechai sends word to her 
that she has to save the Jewish people from genocide, and she has to go to the king. And on behalf of her people, her first reaction is, I can't do it. I have to follow the protocol of the palace. I'm a court Jew. I can't approach the king unsummoned. And finally, the book really centers around chapter four when she comes to the realization that maybe it's particularly for this time, for this need of the Jewish people, that she has arrived at her station in life, that she has attained royalty. Who knows, Mordechai says to her, maybe it is precisely to save the Jewish people that you have achieved royalty. And so we have, in both the characters of Joseph and the character of Esther, two court Jews who are fully assimilated, who cross into the boundary of the other and become, in a sense, indistinguishable from the other, and yet manage, in the end, to draw on a sense of loyalty and solidarity with their people. And it is from that place, across the bounds, that they're able to bring about salvation for their people. And what I want to suggest is that these two different models, Judith and Daniel on the one hand, and Esther and Joseph on the other, in a sense present us with two different models for how we can understand this paradox between the need to cross over, to transgress boundaries, and the need to preserve boundaries. If we return to our very first lecture by Daniel, where he talks about an ethnic consciousness and a mitzvah consciousness, I think in many ways we can line up these four tales into those two categories. Judith and Daniel, maybe we'll call them the Hanukkah model, because Judith is credited with, uh, with the merit of having saved the Jewish people in the period of the Maccabees. She cuts off the general's head, according to the commentators. So Judith is always associated with Hanukkah. And the book of Daniel is written in the period of Hanukkah. And in many ways, the Hanukkah story is the story, even to this day, of how we are going to preserve our distinctiveness as a mi minority culture living in a very alluring and tempting majority culture. And that Hanukkah is about rededicating the temple, preserving our distinctiveness, preserving our boundaries. As Jews in America will have our menorah, they'll have their Christmas tree, right? Hanukkah is about being distinct. Judith and Daniel keep kosher. They pray to God. Uh, being Jewish is about what you do. It's a set of practices, of beliefs. This is what we might call the mitzvah consciousness or Judaism as religion. But then we have the model of Joseph and Esther. Joseph and Esther are completely immersed in the space of the other. All boundaries are blurred. They look, talk, act, eat, sleep with the other and like the other. And if you think about the story of Purim, the holiday of Purim is all about blurring the boundaries, erasing the boundaries, just as Esther was hidden as a Jew in the court. On Purim, we're going to drink until we don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. We're going to wear masks. We're going to dress up like all kinds of others. And that holiday of Purim is about the experience, the prototypical experience of what it means to be a Jew living in the diaspora and becoming in many ways indistinguishable from the other. 
And so what makes us set apart? Simply our being. Judaism is just who you are by virtue of your birth. It is your ethnicity. It is your family. You could be as immersed in the Egyptian palace or the Persian palace as you want in the highest position of leadership. But when your people are threatened, you will come and save them. Why? Because they're family. It's just who you are. So we have these two different models. And I'll conclude now and open it up for questions by just kind of reminding us of the tension that we've raised. And the tension that we've raised is that, in many ways, our Jewish narratives, our foundation narratives, are about crossing over boundaries. And we have to cross those boundaries in order to survive. If Moses hadn't crossed over in that basket and been raised as an Egyptian in the palace, we wouldn't be here today. If Joseph hadn't gone down to Egypt as a slave and made his way into the Pharaoh's palace as the second in command, we would have all died in the famine. If Esther hadn't won the beauty contest, intermarried, went to live in the palace in Persia, we would have, we would have been victims of genocide. If Judith had stayed on that hilltop and hadn't come down to enter the enemy tent, the temple would have been conquered. So we have to transgress or cross boundaries in order to survive. But on the other hand, we want to preserve our boundaries. We want to preserve our distinctiveness. And how do we do that? Do we do it through a set of practices and beliefs and rituals, what we eat and how we pray? Or do we do it by just a sense of kinship and family connection to, to our fellow tribal members? So those are the two models. Judaism as who you are, Judaism as what you do. But I end with, I think, really the challenge that I face when I look at these two models, which is whether or not these models are even sufficient or relevant for us as Americans living in a society where we may or may not need to have boundaries at all. The other is not creating a boundary. So from from external sources, we are not forced to be distinct. That's a major difference in the modern world from the pre-modern world. Even if we wanted to blend into the majority culture in the pre-modern world, there were always fences and walls erected by the other to keep us out, or threats from the other that kept us hunkered down, protecting ourselves. But in the modern world, and particularly in American society, those walls have come down. No one's keeping us out. So the question is, what will keep us in? Do we want boundaries? And if we do want boundaries that distinguishes the us from the them, what are our tools for creating those boundaries? Are they the tools of mitzvah consciousness, the practices and beliefs and rituals that we enact? Or are they the, the boundaries of ethnic consciousness and the ways in which we feel a solidarity to our people? Or are they something entirely different? So I want to conclude with these questions, and I know I've raised more questions than answers in a good Hartman fashion, but I'd like to raise it now for your thoughts about how these biblical models maybe can help us understand our experiences as Jews living in a boundless world um, who maybe want to still preserve our boundaries. Any comments or questions? Okay, so the, the microphone 
may not get to everybody. I'm going to go here, and then I'll go here. I, uh, thank you very much. Um, I guess I'm curious about, we're counting up the days to Shavuot. Um, where would you put the story of Ruth into this model, or does it break the paradigms? Is it something different? I think it's great. Um, I think the book of Ruth in many ways is a redemption of these boundary stories in the sense that um, the book of Ruth is about the ultimate transgression of boundaries because Ruth is a Moabite and we have even in our biblical laws that the Israelites are never to, to marry anyone from the Moabites and were to despise them and were to, you know, persecute them because this was a, a tribe that was bad to us along our historical journey. And yet it's precisely in the story of Shavuot, which in many ways is about chesed, compassion, and it's about redemption because Ruth will be the ancestor of King David, of the Messiah. Um, it's about this messianic vision or this redemptive vision where all boundaries will eventually fall away and, and we will be able to, um, you know, embrace the other um, and the other will embrace us. And I think Ruth is, uh, is both an example of a woman who serves as a symbol of someone who crosses boundaries because she goes into the field of the other. She uncovers Boaz's feet, euphemistically unsummoned in many ways, as Esther goes to the king unsummoned and other characters that we've seen cross over boundaries. So Ruth is a boundary crosser herself, and she's a Moabite, so she's the ultimate other. So it's a great story. It's a great redemptive story of what it would mean um, to live in a world where there, in many ways, are no boundaries and where compassion means that we can all um, treat one another with, with love and with openness and, um, and with kindness. It would help me to understand this better if instead of thinking of the Jew, I asked about the non-Jew who wants to become Jewish and therefore does not have the ethnicity and doesn't want to keep kosher. What is it that makes that person a Jew? Where are the boundaries? What is the distinctiveness for that person that would make him, her, a Jew as opposed to formerly a, a non-Jew? I think it's a great question. And I think that if we only had very strict divisions between two models, one of ethnicity, where you can have no converts because Jewishness is simply a matter of genetics and your birth, or religion, where Jewishness is about your faith and ritual practices, then we might have a problem with someone who wants to convert. But there has always been, even for our inception, a a complexity here. These models, when they are presented, are not meant to be black and white. They're meant to provoke our thoughts and thinking about different forms of Jewishness, but there has always been a great spectrum in between of a set of cultural practices, a set of, um, of shared stories, shared memories, and can a convert enter that sense of a shared history, even if they're not uh, part of a genetic ethnicity, and I think the answer has always been yes. If you think about Maimonides' famous letter to Avadia, the convert, where Avadia asks, this is in Yemen, uh, in the Middle Ages, Avadia asks, when I pray as a convert, 
I've converted to Judaism, but I'm not sure when I get to the Amidah and it says, God of my ancestors, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Can I say that? Because I'm not part of the ethnicity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Maimonides reassures him and says, look, when you are joining the Jewish people, you are joining a story. All of us, in a sense, at Mount Sinai, entering into this peoplehood of aspiration and moral mission. All of us are converts. We all stood at Sinai and accepted this mission and accepted this, this um, obligation to be part of this people. So when you convert to Judaism, it's not just because you have to keep kosher or you have to do certain ritual practices, but you're actually joining a whole people with a whole history and a whole set of memories. And once you've converted, you kind of embody those memories just as any Jew who was born a Jew. That's Maimonides' answer. Now, there's a great debate in Jewish history, and that's a debate that still rages to this day about conversion and about ritual practice. And the, the debate is whether ritual practice is constitutive of Jewish identity. In other words, by studying all of the laws and practices of Judaism and taking upon yourself the yoke of all these commandments, that's what turns you into a Jew. Or is Jewish practice and ritual practice something that you become obligated to after you've converted? In the same way that after you're born into the Jewish people, you now are obligated to keep a certain set of commandments. And you might fulfill all your obligations or not fulfill all your obligations. But it's not what turns you into a Jew. It's what happens to you after you are a Jew, that you now uh, are given this way of life. And you follow it as much or as little as you want. That's another perspective on the convert. Uh, and that's a great debate that's raging. And there's voices on both sides in every, every denomination. Um, and I think it's a good question, but I think it is incumbent upon us, as this is my own personal uh, commentary, I think it's incumbent upon us as Jews living in America that we figure out a way for both Jews and non-Jews who want to become part of the Jewish people to be able to feel connected to the Jewish people through multiple vehicles. Because living as Jews in the modern world, Judaism has a multiplicity of meanings, and it's not only ritual practice. Judaism also means culture. It also means ethics and tikkun olam. It means a shared story and a sense of connection to Israel. It means a lot of things besides keeping kosher. So I think it's very important for us to, both for our Jewish community and for those who want to join our Jewish community, um, to, to celebrate those many ways of being Jewish and being part of the Jewish people. One over here. great question. It's a great question. Now listen, I think it's true of all of us that we do selective reading and that we pick those texts from the Jewish tradition that resonate with us and highlight our ideology so that anytime you study with a teacher really on any topic, you know that there's been a certain amount of selection. I brought you texts that fascinate me. If you study with another teacher, they're going to bring you a different set of texts. The same is true of 
different denominations and Jews of different ideologies when they turn to certain sources from the tradition and kind of ignore other sources. There's an interesting interpretation I heard recently from my colleague Micha Goodman about the difference between Daniel and Joseph. He has a completely opposite read that I have. I see Daniel as having been written as a corrective to the Joseph story by the Jews in the Hellenistic world that are very concerned about what it means when we immerse with Greek culture and we need to become particularistic. Micha sees the Joseph story as the redemption of the Daniel story because Joseph saves the Jewish people. He brings about the salvation of the children of Israel and feeds them and rescues them. And what does Daniel do? Daniel sits in Babylonia praying and keeping kosher while the temple's being destroyed. If you look at the dates in the book of Daniel, Daniel is there second in command to the king the whole time that Nebuchadnezzar is attacking and conquering and defeating Judea, destroying the temple, and exiling the Jewish people. And never in the book of Daniel do you see Daniel going to the king like Esther goes to her husband and saying, save my people. So Micha sees Daniel as actually what he would call the kind of Satmar, the Satmar version of, of, of history in that Daniel is a religious Jew and he's not going to fight uh, history. God's in control of history. If Israel is meant to be destroyed, if the temple's meant to be destroyed, so be it. I'm going to passively and faithfully observe the commandments of God and that's my obligation as a Jew. Whereas Joseph right, is the peoplehood Jew. He may not be following all the religious laws, but he saves the Jewish people. And so what, what Micha would say, you know, he would look very critically at the story of Daniel, whereas others might look very critically at the story of Joseph, who intermarries and is eating trade. So it's very interesting, and I think what we can take away from the comparison of the two stories and all these multiple models is that the Bible preserves, and of course the later Jewish tradition preserves, a multiplicity of voices. It's fascinating that even within the biblical canon itself, you have competing models. This is what I think Yisrael Kanol, another colleague at the Shalom Hartman Institute, would call the divine symphony. That the Bible is like a divine symphony. There are different songs. There are different tunes. There's, there's different models. And so you can have your book of Daniel, and I'll have my book of Joseph. And the Bible is meant to preserve a pluralism of voices and models and ideas, possibly so that throughout the rest of Jewish history, we can always turn and find sources from the Bible that can speak to us in our current setting um, and, and inform our current realities. Sure. I'm interested in the, uh, the duality or the dual-edged sword uh, quality of this issue of assimilation. Uh, as Micha said, and as we've known from uh, those of us that grew up in the, in the 50s and 60s here, the assimilation of Jews led to almost a subsumation of the Jews uh, and, and a loss, total loss of identity. And then you have the story of, of Esther and the story of uh, um, uh, Joseph, where it's, it's a weapon and it's something that's actually turned into something that saves the Jews. In many other cultures and many other religions, uh, this idea of assimilation is viewed as betrayal, is, is a basis for ostracism or worse. So I'm interested in, in two things. One is, what other cultures is assimilation a weapon? And two, 
how do we turn this assimilation from something that becomes just uh, a subsumation and into something that becomes something that's positive? So this is a perfect ending question. I thank you so much for this question because in many ways this was the point of my talk, which is that what we might call assimilation or for the purposes this evening I've been calling boundary crossing is essential for Jewish survival as it is essential for any minority culture living in a majority culture. And there was a, a chancellor at the Jewish Theological Seminary in the 70s and 80s named Gerson Cohen. He was also a historian, um, a professor at Columbia, and he wrote a very important article called The Blessings of Assimilation, where he talks about how the Jewish people and all peoples in many ways have survived precisely because of assimilation. And the irony of assimilation is that sometimes people are assimilating in order to erect boundaries or in order to preserve distinctiveness. The Hellenistic world is the perfect example. The Hasmoneans follow many, many of the Greek models, including the transfer of Jewish identity from a purely ethnic identity to a religious and cultural and political identity that was very much informed from their influence of the Greek world and the, what it meant to be a Greek citizen. That as the Greek empire spread, Greeks meant not only your birth and your ethnicity, but Greek also meant your language and your culture and your philosophy, and peoples across the globe could become Greek citizens. And similarly, when the Hasmonean dynasty began to spread and the Idumeans were, um, were essentially converted into Judeanness, what it meant is that these non-Jews could become citizens of Judea, which meant that they would become part of the religion or the culture, the language, and the political entity of the Jewish people. And so ironically, it was through the process of Hellenization that the Hasmoneans spread their Jewish empire. And then we have many, many other examples. And, and here I refer you again to Shia Cohen in his book, The Beginnings of Judaism, that, um, or the beginning of Jewishness, that, um, that it was through, in many ways, forms of assimilation or influence that the rabbis, through either their interpretive midrash or other kind of laws and practices, actually saved the Jewish people. If we hadn't used those interpretive tools, which are often tools that are influenced by assimilation, then we wouldn't have survived as a Jewish people because we would have become irrelevant. So Maimonides is a great example of assimilation. Maimonides is a student of Aristotelian philosophy. If he had not, through that positive form of assimilation, of having been learned in Aristotelian philosophy and wanting to reconcile Jewish tradition with modern philosophy of the time, and if he hadn't written The Guide for the Perplexed, Many Jews maybe would not have been Jewish, and Judaism maybe in some ways would not have survived. There's lots of examples, like the rabbis and like Maimonides and others, and then the question is, can we apply that example to our existence as Jews in America today? There's no question that a certain amount of assimilation, of immersing in American culture, politics, social society, has saved us as a Jewish people. APAC, I think, is a great example of positive assimilation, of being able to protect the state of Israel and the Jewish people by becoming so immersed in American society and politics that we are able, like Joseph, like Esther, to, um, to be in positions of influence and affluence. 
Um, and I could go on, but I'll just say the title again, which always sticks with me, Gerson Cohen's article, The Blessing of Assimilation. Yes, we are afraid. We're very much afraid. What happens in an age where boundaries dissolve and they don't distinguish themselves from us, does that spell the end of us? If there's not an us and a them, what happens to us? So yes, it is absolutely incumbent upon us as Jews and Jewish leaders to be very concerned about the question of boundaries today. Because in net, unless we erect our own boundaries, they're not gonna erect boundaries against us in American society, God willing, right? They, you may disagree with me on this, but I think that the experience particularly of younger generations of Jews living in America is living in an age of boundlessness, boundless opportunity. We can go anywhere, we can marry anyone, we can do anything. So do we want the boundaries? And if we do, how do we erect them? So wonderful to learn with you. Kol HaKavod on being together as a Jewish people and I hope you'll continue and go from strength to strength and looking forward to sharing dinner with you. <laughs>